I took my mom with me for a little trip and she was just like looking at the nothing and I'm like are you okay like what are you thinking she's like I just don't remember when was the last time that I saw a butterfly isn't that heartbreaking I'm always surprised by by how many people like have so much passion for all of these films and for the festival and for it to continue and and really that whole idea of asking questions and questioning the media and questioning the filmmakers and questioning the science and everything I think is really, really healthy conversation that we just really like to nurture. Hi everyone, welcome to Roots to Reason. As always, it's a pleasure to have you. My name is Sarah and in case you missed the first half of this series or you haven't listened to the introductory episode. I'd just like to bring you all up to speed a bit. The purpose of this podcast series is to practice and model conducting emotional, intellectual, and substantive environmental conversations. It was born out of a frustration that me and my co-hosts have seen in our daily lives and played out in politics and classrooms at the dining room table where conversations are stagnant, people are arguing and butting heads and not truly listening to one another or getting at the roots of the environmental convictions that each other have. It was important for us to include the emotional components of these people's lives in relationship with the environment and boy, do we go there today. Uh, Today's interviews are with Claudia Medina and Carrie Richard. Claudia is interviewed by myself and Carrie Richard is interviewed by Rowan Ulrich. I hope you folks enjoy this episode. Um, It's super rich and you might want to have a box of tissues around. Just saying. Here's Claudia. My name is Claudia Medina. I'm 35. (laughs) Um, I am working at Planck right now. Uh, It's great, you know, that type of work while you're in school. Mm-hmm. Like, let's see, I'm from Peru. I've been in Montana for like 10 years now. Oh. Well, on and off, but about 10 to 12 years. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Time is just like flying in my mind. Where in Peru are you from? I'm from the south, from Arequipa. It's, um, uh, it's a high desert city. When I left 12 years ago, it was like maybe half a million people. And I just went there and visited after a while and it's about a million and a half people now. So talk about like growing fast and unorganized. But I mean overall there are some things about the city that I still found amazing and gorgeous. So it was a good experience to go and see that, you know, with a different lens I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um you know, it's like some cities are more green than others. Like, oh. how would you describe? Oh God! How do you pronounce it? Arequipa. Arequipa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it used to be that way. When I grew up there, um, I mean, it's it's gorgeous, right? It's like high desert, but it has also a coastline within like an hour drive, mm-hmm. and it has one of the deepest canyons within a couple of hours drive. So it's a very diverse. You know, geography is like kind of like ups and downs and just very violent geography. But because it has a little bit of a coast breeze, because it has so many like geographical like 
what do you say, like just, you know, like crazy uh, micro weathers and everything. It's, um, it used to be like, even though it was arid, it used to be like really good for like people farming. Not a lot of like animal stuff. It was mostly agricultural and a little bit of mining, like copper, silver, and all that stuff. But um, going back there, all of that is gone. Wow. Yeah. Like the city has tripled in population in like six years. Jeez. Yeah. So talking about green, not so much anymore. Okay. Uh-huh. What about um, like sustainability-wise? Um, it is actually very like growing in a very capitalist in a very capitalist way um just produce more produce more because that's the only way to get poverty out of the picture you gotta work 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 and not even consider or think about you are out of resources but when when i took out of the city just to keep visiting a little bit beautiful parts of the country like five six hour drive um we were near um the edges of the jungle not per se full-on jungle on the amazon but we were near and people are realizing of all this immigration wave that is coming up to our country and you see signs everywhere like take care of nature like you know when people are still living in that environment they are realizing but in the city not so much it's almost like it's been gone like i took my mom with me for a little trip and she was just like looking at the nothing and I'm like are you okay like what are you thinking she's like I just don't remember when was the last time that I saw a butterfly oh, is it that heartbreaking wow. and I was like wow yeah like people wow. in the city don't even know yeah let's talk more about your like time as a kid and going back and forth between oh sure the city and your grandparents oh sure um so how it was like okay right um you have to get up at 6, 7 in the morning, go to school, be there until 4, 5 p.m. Because my school was like a half, how do you say, like, not fully, like, um, there are people that are those schools where you can, like, go and leave there. But mine oh. was, like, half of that. And it was not a regular school. You spend, like, extra time there. Whatever. So it was all, it was very intense, very intense. And then we'll do like English classes and math and French and all this stuff, right? And so when school was over and we'll go visit my grandma to the valley, um, it was like, get up at five in the morning, let's go milk the cows because then we're going to have to do breakfast for everybody. And it was a hike every time to go to the cows from like, a neighbor farmer, you know, because she had bulls, she didn't have cows. So the fellow, the neighbor farmer had the cows. So we'll go play a little bit, he'll like a square milk in your face, you know, like having that kind of like childhood that now looks like, oh my God, that is so like Ingalls family or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that was it, right? And so we'll do breakfast together. My grandma cooked like literally on a mud oven with wood that they would chop every day, like full wow. on rustic, no electricity, no running water, but it was like so charming. And it was like a very self-sufficient way to live. To do it, even though it was a lot of work, like every time my grandma would be like, you guys need to bring some water from the creek. It was like, ugh, you know, it's like hard work. 
But then it's like six or seven of you and you're just fooling around and like, you know, bringing fresh water so she could like boil it and then cook with that. Um, it was work, obviously, but it was fun. And now as an adult, looking back, I'm like, oh my God, that was so beautiful. Who were some of your role models or inspirations growing up? Um, definitely my grandmothers because... Um, Peru and the culture, it always struck me to be a little bit of, uh, you know, male dominated. There was a lot of machism. I could tell that from very young age, you know, my um, decisions were made by my, my dad, my uncles, like the men of the house and everything. But in my grandma's house, she was the boss. Her husband couldn't tell her what to do. None her songs my grandma ha only had like five songs and they are very strong character men and they each have their wife and they each have like five or six children so it's like but she was the matriarch you know what i'm saying and everything that she said it went and if she said is you you know your grandpa's birthday and everybody's coming nobody could say no and so it was like this whole thing where everybody would listen to her and i just love that on my mom's side of the family her mom she was more of the soft grandmother. It was like very religious and the husband was like a military guy. So, you know, I could see like her house, my house, my aunts, everybody else. And I see my grandma and I'm like, yeah, she's the boss. So every time I think about that, I'm like, yeah, that's definitely a role model for me. Mm -hmm. Strong woman, yeah. that's what she want. And she always did things right. Now that I look back on it, right, I'm like, oh, yeah, she did things right every time. And she was a little witchy, so that was cool. She was like a shaman, you know, mm -hmm. so that was really cool, too. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Um, can you talk about, like, your journey to the United States? How is it that you're in Missoula, Montana? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's kind of like a crazy story. Um I was studying environmental law in Peru um, because, you know, if your parents are going to make the effort to send you through school or you're a lawyer or you're a doctor or some sort of engineer. So like half of my class was, is a lawyer now, which is funny enough. But um, I was doing that for like four years. And then I got a course to do in the university in Utah. And so I did a college program where you just trade and come here and take a class. Um, so I did that. My English wasn't great. I'm still polishing it. but uh, So I was like, I can't do this. I can't keep up. And it was like very technical language for me at the time. So I was like, I can't do this. I'm going to like stay here, travel for a year, practice my English, and then I'll be back and retake this. And I started working on restaurants because... That's the easy thing to do. And my family owns restaurants in Peru. So that's something that I was like very comfortable with. Um, so I changed my visa from, you know, student visa to an H2B, which it was really easy to get 10 years ago. And so I started traveling seasonally doing work on restaurants um, in national parks or resort towns, islands, you know. And did that for almost a decade. Lived in like 35 states, including Hawaii and Alaska. That was super awesome. And then 
when I decided to move on from that, I got a little course to get my ENT certification because I wanted to become a firefighter. So I did that for a summer, almost a year. And it was really, really hard. So I was like, okay, um, I'm gonna get back into school and do something else. And so that's how I ended up in the sustainable construction program because kind of a hands-on person and like to be outside, you know? And I knew that I was never gonna be like a white collar lawyer. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's uh, that's how I made it here. I mean, I've been in a lot of places, but I love Montana for the space. Mm-hmm. I love Montana for the rivers. Um, it just seems so chill compared to all the other places that I was. And granted, I was in places that people go to vacation to, um, but I just love the landscape here and the lifestyle, mm-hmm, the vibe. So environmental law, sustainable construction. I know, right? So you clearly have this draw toward environmental mm-hmm. work of some sort. Yeah. Um, what do you think were the like major contributing factors to your... Would you say that you have a passion for the environment? or? You know, now that I like say it out loud, I can see that what do you say, like the common thread or the silver lining, you know, like thinking back is like, oh yeah, I always kind of care or liked being outside and wanted somehow to be part of it or around it or protect it. Um, You know, I just got back from a trip and as soon as I got there, I was with the family, I spent a couple of weeks and then I was just like, I need to get out of here. My stress levels were up and I was not able to relax. So we went to the jungle and it was gorgeous. And like I said, even my mom was like, oh my God, butterflies, I forgot they existed, you know? Um, so now that I'm looking back on it and I can see how everything is kind of coming together. Um, it's still growing. People are migrating to these beautiful areas, but they're doing it wrong. Um, People are bringing tons of machinery to like open up a space, pour a bunch of concrete, pour a bunch of metal, set up some bricks because that's just the construction in South America, right? It's um, it's not very um, environmentally friendly. None of these materials are ever going to biodegrade and be back to the earth, like never. And so when you do that, when you like deforest a place and build a house because you find yourself in a beautiful environment, it's a little selfish because there is so much space for everybody and everybody's just like taking over. So I think, and then, you know, once I got back, there was this whole thing where the blood calls and I'm like, oh my God, I love my country, but this is so crazy, but I love it so much. So I think in my journey and with this new program, I want to go back there and kind of like bring that a little bit into the culture, you know, Yeah. or try. Yeah. Maybe start a little business, building houses for people sustainably, teaching them, yeah. you know? Yeah. Okay. So we just talked about what you're most passionate about. What about, can you describe a scenario that you felt devastated in? Anything, anytime, something that really devastated you. Oh, going back home and seeing all those beautiful churches. I mean, I'm not a religious person, but 
and I shouldn't be proud of this because like all of the beautiful architecture in South America is from our emancipators so it's a lot of like influence from Spanish style but it is gorgeous you know what I'm saying and so going back there and seeing all of these beautiful white volcanic rock buildings completely deteriorated and not cared for and black with the smog oh that was so sad and they were like completely better around huge buildings um seeing the disorganization on how the country grew like there are a lot of poor people and they're like at the edges of the volcanoes like my city has like three huge volcanoes like a whole chain of volcanoes around it and it was gorgeous and at the edge it was like all these beautiful green fields and farming and and then you'll see in the in the in the center of the valley of this platform right high desert the city but now it's like spread out all the way to the to the edge of the volcanoes and it's just like concrete 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 and it's so gray that was heartbroken you see you're driving through a busy street and seeing a little tree all like brown and barely <laughs> that kind of stuff like really was devastating to me yeah mm-hmm. Jeez. I can't even imagine of, that yeah. yeah i was like i could never live in a city like that again yeah never i mean i, I even have like the tingly eye <laughs> <laughs> or my mom saying like oh my god a butterfly that yeah. was heartbreak yeah <laughs> yeah uh-huh. i mean the loss of a home that you knew i yeah. know yeah yeah totally and young people growing and not having their connection that is super sad I, I suppose you want to preserve these things for the for young people. Right. You don't want young people to, to grow up and not to have these things. Uh-huh. If you could articulate why. Why is it that you... Um, because... Meeting people from my city, they are so stressed, you know? And I can tell them, like, go take a hike or just float the river. I can tell them that because there is none of that. All the rivers are so polluted. It's so sad. And so what they want to do is, like, oh, yeah, I should just go to the doctor and get a prescription for something. So you see, like, that um, vicious circle that we're building for ourselves. It's like not healthy at all whatsoever so that breaks my heart and so i think it's important to realize how important it is to have a beautiful um environment to respect it because it makes you happy i mean you're gonna need it you can't live off of i mean i don't know how they do it honestly but I see their lifestyles and their levels of stress and how unhappy they are, and they don't even know it. Yeah. It's so sad. Imagine you're having like a conversation with one of those construction workers who's just putting up all the concrete, concrete buildings. Uh-huh. And they say something to you like, well, this is my job and my livelihood, and yeah. like we need to be doing this to put food on the table. Right. And we, you know, this is the only way that it works. Have you ever had a conversation like that in real life? No, but I've, in my mind, I've in had it. <laughs> what, do you, what happens in your mind? Because 
Uh, we were doing this beautiful walk to the waterfalls. Um, this was uh, somewhere in Colombia, um, Minca, Colombia. And all the land is for sale. It's so sad. There is like lots of places where people do grow uh, coffee and cacao and pineapples. Oh, my God. Um, and all of this beautiful land is for sale because they can make it because everybody's doing the same thing. And so there is, you know, like... They need diversity, and so when they can make it, because all they know is grow coffee or cacao, and everybody's doing it, so they just want to sell their land and maybe move off to the city and work for somebody, you know what I'm saying? And so a lot of these places are for sale for very cheap, and what's happening, rich people come and buy it and build a country house, but... In the process, they are like chopping up some trees and digging some holes to build a road to your house that is in the middle of the top of a beautiful mountain and just like completely deforesting. But um, I was in this beautiful trail going to the waterfall and I see this huge bulldozer just taking down to open up a road. And I was like, oh my God, I'm in the middle of the jungle. Why am I seeing this? How is this happening? And so... In my mind, I'm having this whole conversation with this person, right? Like, why are you doing this? Why are you not taking advantage of all these beautiful trees or bamboo that you can do to build your house? And you don't need to, like, take all of this down. You don't need to bring all of this concrete that you don't... And that's the other part of sustainable construction, that you are not even, like, utilizing the smart you're just bringing a bunch and whatever you don't use or you resell it or if you messed up on something, you just throw it into the jungle and that's never going to disappear. You know, like, let's be a little bit smart about how we are utilizing these precious spaces. And ugh, in my mind, I'm just like having this whole conversation with this person, like, let's do this smart. There is another way to do it. Yes, you can live here, but just like be a little bit more in harmony with your surroundings. Don't ruin it. Yeah, I wouldn't know how he answers. In my mind, it's like, yes, you're right. <laughs> Show me the ways. How can I do this better? <laughs> yes. How does the thought of climate change make you feel? Oh, makes me cringe. People are still in disbelief. Like, they don't... People that think that that's not a thing. I don't know where to start there. You know, it's so frustrating. It's like, how can you not believe it? Like, can you see it? Like... It's, 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 just, it's just not natural when s these temperatures are rising, there is fires everywhere, and it's just like, it used to not be like this 10 years ago, or like three years ago, like the changes are happening so fast, and people are in disbelief, it's like, oh, but what, what can you do? I mean, just choose a path and try to do your best there, and hopefully you're helping out a little bit and not being part of the problem. I mean, that's the only thing I have. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a challenging conversation about climate change um, where maybe someone didn't believe that it was uh, happening or at least it wasn't so bad? Um, I mean, there are stubborn people out there, but I am not a confrontational person. So every time somebody says something that I don't agree on, I'm not that kind of person that just gets like, ah, you know what I'm saying? I have to. I'm like, oh, OK, well, you know. Hopefully you'll ask me and I'll give you my opinion, but if not, okay, I'm just going to move on. I'm not going to ruin my day. I, yeah. Um, but for example, my dad was like, oh, and this is a cultural thing too. Oh, he's such a machista. Um, he goes, 
Have you taken Peter to eat um one of my favorite dishes is this shrimp soup, right? He's like, have you taken me to that restaurant that makes your favorite shrimp soup? And I'm like, no, I don't think it's going to happen now because the shrimp is in beta. And um, yeah, he's like, yeah, but people still sell it. And I was like, yeah, I know, but I am not going to support them selling that because we should let them reproduce. Like we should let them grow and then everybody can have shrimp. But when it's prohibited, prohibited to go buy shrimp and these people are still grabbing them and putting it in restaurants and people are buying it, it's so wrong all the way. So no, I'm not going to take him because I don't support this. And my dad was like, looking at me like I'm a crazy person. And I'm like, oh my God, how can I explain this to these old stubborn men? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, it will be a, more, a little bit more expensive, but just pay for it. It's delicious. I'm like, oh, God, you're part of the problem. <laughs> Dad, <laughs> I did have a little bit of a conversation with him about this whole thing, right? And I'm like, what if we don't support them and they don't have to, you know, get all those little shrimps and let them grow? Wouldn't it be better? So that way, when I have a child, I can bring him back here and he can taste that delicious soup. Or do you think it's better to just eat whatever little bit is left over and then maybe your grandson will never be able to taste it and he was like oh had a hot moment but okay it's gonna be it's gonna be an ongoing conversation with some people you know little examples like these maybe will build up maybe will stick into their minds that okay we should care about the resources about our food about like everything nature is giving you like take care of it don't just abuse it and like then if it's gone at least you had it like how selfish is that yeah right yeah what do you feel like is the biggest factor that inhibits like good productive conversation maybe between people who like disagree Mm -hmm. i don't know um close-minded ignorancy just you know um yeah I don't understand people like that. Honestly, I'm like, how can I get through you? Like, And if I can get through them, I'm not going to waste my time. I mean, I probably should. But I just... Such a small, precious little life. And I just... I know that's wrong. I should probably try harder. But what can you do? Some people just don't want it. They don't care. They don't... You know? Um... But there are other people that are interested or they will be open to listening and maybe you are better off convincing those people or talking with them rather than the ones that don't want to listen. Yeah, I I don't have any power over that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like I said, maybe somebody that they love and respect will be able to get through them, but not everybody, probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well... I really appreciate you talking with us. Oh, yeah. Thank you, guys. It's nice to have these conversations. I'm sorry I got a little emotional there. I was joking. (laughs) (laughs) It's emotional. That's the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I guess it shows a little bit when you really care for something, right? Totally. Yeah. Our conversation with Claudia really illustrated how fundamental the places are that we grew up in.
whether it's urban, rural, jungle, desert, seeing them change or not having access to a home that you once knew is very impactful and it's happening all around the globe. And I really appreciated Claudia's authenticity and vulnerability in our conversation and I think that's something that we often try to avoid. We avoid the personal in our conversations, but really the personal is what's shaping the entire view that we are bringing to the table. Thank you, Claudia. And so now we're going to transition into a really refreshing perspective on having conversations and how media plays such an important role in shaping our ideas um, and our opinions. everyone uh this is rowan here and i'm here with carrie richer who is the director of the international uh wildlife film festival uh thank you so much for being here today sure thanks for having me uh may i ask where you grew up yeah i grew up in denver colorado do you uh feel like where you grew up uh particularly had like a significant like impact on like who you are and specifically like pertaining to like how you perceive like environment the like wildlife global issues surrounding environmental issues like that sort of thing I do um I I did grow up in in the city in Denver but I spent probably all my summers up in Estes Park in the Rocky Mountains and um my parents met as canoe counselors a long time ago and um, always infused a ton of just being out in the wild in our lives from very, very small. And then my dad was also the um, vice president of the Museum of Nature and Science there in Denver. And so there was like a lot of crawling around back behind um, exhibits and meeting a lot of cool scientists and all of that. So um, I, I think it was hugely influential. Um, would you say um, that you had any like particular people in your life that uh, you sort of looked to, or you you think you gleaned a lot of what you what how you feel about uh, the environment, your relationship to the environment from? Yeah, um, I mean, for sure, my parents, and then I I was also a summer camp kid, so I spent a lot of time just leading trips and going outside, but. But a lot later in my life, actually, um, even past college, I moved to Jackson, Wyoming, and I lived there for about 12 years and spent a lot of time in the like greater Teton wilderness. And I have two very good friends who are both wildlife biologists, um, Carlin and Amy, and they just really taught me to just like walk around and observe and look and pay attention and think and question in a way that, um, I hadn't really as a pretty arts focused kid and it was pretty pretty mind-blowing to learn from them that yeah way. that's super cool i feel like that's a while walking around with wildlife biology people is a sure way to get you thinking about the population ecology side sorry i'm a wildlife biology yeah. major so i like i feel like i have like a very interesting or we all have like a weird lens from which we view it, but it's a that's a cool experience for sure. 
Yeah, it's it's like feels like your own personal tour guides, and you start understanding how things impact each other and greater circles and importance of management and numbers and data in in ways that like maybe my like romping through the wild and doing really cool trips you know was really informative but it certainly deepened my appreciation for it not to mention just the fact that they're when you have really incredibly smart awesome friends it's it's that's a great way to learn yeah it makes for a good trip yeah would you uh describe your feelings about climate change Sure. I mean, I have a pretty specific take in that I'm the director of the International Wildlife Film Festival here in town. And um, what I do a lot of the, you know, a lot of the time is I think about how media impacts the way we all think and the way people are approaching environmentalism. Uh, I think it's an incredible tool. I also think it's like an overwhelmingly powerful tool and um, it 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 doesn't really sit well with me the way our culture sort of interacts with media but I also have a lot of respect for the films we play and the filmmakers I meet that are doing really great dynamic work to get accurate science and and information out but um, it's for sure something that I think about all the time, and that's probably the lens in which I think about climate change the most. Yeah. Cool. And so, uh, how did you come to uh, work as the director for the Wildlife Film Festival here in Missoula? Um, well, I um, completed my master's in film in San Francisco and immediately moved to the mountains to ski in Jackson, Wyoming, as I mentioned. And it's really, I ended up um, working at a wildlife film festival there immediately. It was sort of the, a film-related job that was really interesting to me. And then, um, as I mentioned, just from getting to know that area and a lot of the biologists in town and then um, getting a little more steeped in that work, um, that's sort of how I got roped in. And now it's been about 12 or 15 years since I've been doing that and um, still doing it. So. Yeah. So what would you say, uh, and I, I think you maybe touched on like the importance of media in like climate change and environmental conversations, but I guess uh, specifically pertaining to the Wildlife Film Festival, film, film Festival, what's most important to you about that? Um, there's like this really heavy legacy that comes with IWFF here in town. It, it, um, it was born out of the Wildlife Biology Department here, actually, at oh. UM. And um, it was founded by this bear biologist, Chuck Junkle, and it was really serious about um, ethically making, you know, making films ethically in terms of wildlife treatment. And, and back then it was about baiting animals and anthropomorphizing them and yeah. um, how we present stories on film. Um, and now it like sort of seeps into you know, drone ethics and production ethics and money and travel and footprints and all, like, it sort of runs the gamut. So I think that, like, really high level of values that IWFF has um, feel really, really important to me to protect. Yeah. Um, and what do you think, like, as far as viewers, what do you think their main takeaways, like, what what do you think, like, the average person can expect to 
sort of get from going to the uh, International Wildlife Film Festival? I mean, I feel like the cool thing about the festival is we cover a lot of different levels. I think there are films for people who just want to know about new places and new animals and just have like those really ever curious minds. Mm -hmm. um, I also feel like this town is full of incredibly um, smart, educated, sharp people that um, these films really challenge and the conversations afterwards are really interesting and stimulating and I love that part of it. Um, and I also, um, we show our films to a lot of kids, so we have a big youth matinee pro um, program where a bunch of elementary school kids come in for free and watch films and talk to filmmakers and scientists about the ideas going on there. And, you know, that's a really huge way to make an impact right now is to communicate importance of questioning media and also of the environment to yeah so I think you touched a bit on my next question that I had actually um, I guess what what kind of excites you or maybe frustrates you if if it does at all about like the conversations that ensue after watching uh, viewing those films I think the thing that excites me is how many people always show up and come back to them um, it has a really loyal following and people really love being part of that and that's been the case whether you come to the Roxy Theater for those screenings or now we do it virtually too which we'll be doing both this year um, and I, I feel like I'm always surprised by how, by how many people like have so much passion for all of these films and for the festival and for it to continue and and really that whole idea of asking questions and questioning media and questioning the filmmakers and questioning the science and everything I think is a really really healthy conversation that we just really like to nurture and so uh, what excites you about on a personal level like about having like these like uh, environmental based conversations with people whether they're at the film festival or in like everyday life and what are, what are kind of your reservations on conversation as a means of kind of enacting change mm, that's a good question um, I do get really excited about filmmakers being here and really hearing more about choices they made and how they were representing their subject and and how they approach making a film and I think audiences love hearing that because it makes it more real and more about an issue and more about personal perspectives and questions than it does just about something you flip on it in the TV but I do think that there is obviously sort of this lackadaisical um, attitude where like you can watch some movies or go to the IWFF or flip it on virtually or make some social media posts but it does seem like we're at the point where like bigger change is really something that is very obvious and very essential and I think um, that seems like a hard jump to make for a lot of people yeah so what what sort of conditions do you think are necessary to kind of have like like emotional but meaningful 
productive conversations about environmental issues and climate change? I don't know. I mean, I'm going to bring up a film because that's sort of what I know. But we do have this film this year called The Year Earth Changed. And it is about that moment when the world was completely in lockdown and when no planes were running and no one was driving and where our footprint and our actions were just so much more minimal. And it is traces all these incredible moments in the wild where like wildlife came back to places or started acting really different or just like started flourishing or numbers we saw like we're at we're severely changing numbers that where we really have the power to shut some stuff down and make some big changes and then you know we just kind of hopped back on the wagon like I I don't really know what the solution is but it's pretty impressive for just like three months, three months of shut down, you know, what the results were. And that's inspiring. And it's also sad that we just bounced back so far from that. So I, I mean, I think we have the capability to make some sacrifices, maybe. I don't know. I feel like it always comes down to money and corporations and people making choices that don't, aren't prioritizing those things is hard for humans yeah definitely yeah it's kind of been a common theme of notices just like uh just using less and just a reduction seems to have a pretty well as you said about the was it the day the earth changed the year yeah. oh, the year the year and, and i i mean i'm sure it's a year but like there were really like four months where it was, where it was like was nothing and i mean it's just like kind of it's like so powerful and inspiring to see the change that happened in that but also like oh my god like what if we all just took two months yeah just or just tried to do less or just dial it down and i think it's better for humans and for balance and um i i mean i just don't know if we're able as a society to dial it back the way that i think we should yeah just to see for (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) just to see that you're we are capable of doing that in weird out of the blue situations and then we did it and then as soon as you know it's like ooh, back in person and everything's running again yay yeah Yeah, that was a surreal few months it really was it was like kind of a important moment i mean i'm so glad that some of these filmmakers documented some of that stuff um but i it will be interesting to see if it can convince our society to yeah it's yeah it's such a tumultuous time i feel like as far as like well media polarization and that sort of thing that um I don't know people people don't like to believe a lot in <laughs> certain things as as well as uh, environmental issues yeah yeah and then there starts to be like all kinds of like environmental anxiety and people just kind of shut down and yeah. can't handle it which is like a real phenomena a real thing and I think sometimes just naming that is like an important step of recognizing I think a lot of young people feel that way definitely pervasive 
So um, do you typically find that the conversations you have with people end up pretty productive or do you find that they end up stagnating? I don't have a lot of um, like really controversial discussions with people I think that don't agree with me. I should probably have more of those. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do feel like in a way that I get really fired up about things and that I myself lose steam and stagnate a little unless I have, you know, a a bigger force pushing me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, yeah, I would say that stagnant is a little bit where it goes. So would you say, like, when it comes to disagreements, that it it usually comes to that point of just, it's like we're we're both not going to get anywhere here, so let's just leave it be? I don't know. I have a hard time. (laughs) I mean, I am a little fiery, but, like, I have a hard time leaving things where they are, and I just keep thinking, like, I think that's why I go back to media so much is... Like the wolf thing. Um, I know how I feel about wolves. I know how other people feel about wolves. I can see all the um, reasons that everybody feels the way they feel. I can see everybody's stubbornness where they can't even open their ears to each other. Um, And we showed this film called True Wild last year that was made over in Paradise Valley um, about a woman who's a biologist on Ted Turner's ranch and they have wolves that live with their elk and their bison and everything on their land and she was just a matter-of-fact biologist who just talked about what she saw and what she saw the wolves eating and how she saw them feeding off the week and how she didn't see an impact necessarily of them living with each other and in some ways I think that um, you know movies like that that are really about characters she's this incredible really visceral character cool woman who you just like want to sit down and have some beers with and um i always feel like it's like dynamic characters that can cut through and just be human and just appeal to everybody like you know that's i think why i always come back to media because i feel like that's the stuff that could change people's minds that wouldn't even pick up a lot of the other documentaries or look at anything else. I mean, I just think media does have the potential to cross, cross lines in a way if it's done, if it's done well. Yeah. (laughs) So kind of more broad scale. Universal, like find our universal traits, find our universal commonalities and Mm. then, and try to appeal through those. Mm -hmm. It's way easier said than for sure yeah in relationship to like uh media between media and conversations what role do you think those two in the future will play as far as like environmental advocacy and do you have any reservations as far as both of those mediums go well that's interesting you put it that way i feel like they really need to come hand in hand so I feel like there's also a way of viewing media that's really passive and you just kind of like watch and, and our culture just does that so much. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we just have stuff playing at us and we do absorb and watch things, but I think we watch really differently when there's a conversation after, when there are questions after, when people are um, 
pointing out things they left out of the film or they put in or um, telling important stories of people that they met while they were making the films. Um, I am a really huge believer in not having it be a passive viewing experience and that at least you should be in a theater with people where you can turn around and talk to the people you went to that film with and question and, and talk about it. And I think above all that that's what we need. We need to be like questioning and talking about what we see and hear in this world with each other and processing it ourselves and learning to think that way ourselves and teaching young people to think that way. And I mean, I just feel like that's like the bare minimum. Like we just have to get people to be savvy at consuming media and processing it themselves. Yeah, for sure. I can, I can agree with that. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Would you like to talk a bit about the International Wildlife Film Festival here? I mean, mostly just if, you know, if you don't know about it, um, we'll be at the Roxy Theater from April 23rd to the 30th. And we also have some screenings at the UC Theater that'll be free and a screening at the Wilma that'll be free. And then we are going to go virtual May 1st through 7th. And that's like, we're trying to make everything globally available as much as we can with licensing um and so you don't have to watch at a certain time you don't have to pick a certain thing you just get on there and grab a ticket um you can go to wildlifefilms.org and find out more but it's um it's just really fantastic it's 75 films this year curated by a really impeccable preliminary jury that is made up of working wildlife biologists and filmmakers and um and we definitely like to talk about the films after so um, yeah. so come on down and, and grab us and I, I hope that people check it out yeah I'm definitely excited to go see it yeah. but yeah alright well thank you so much for coming on yeah. and talking with me thanks so much it was great and having these conversations with people and in doing this research and working on this environmental podcast series together all of us have really been challenged to reanalyze the way that we think and why we think that way. And I hope that these conversations are inspiring you all to do the same. A lot of these topics aren't easy to address, and I think as societies, that's why we often try to suppress them, because they they bring up the personal and the emotional, and those are challenging to maintain and balance in a conversation. Um, but it takes practice on all of our parts. I appreciate the the sincerity that people have brought to the table. And it's cool to, to see our research reflected in those that we're talking to. Uh, for example, something that Carrie mentioned, incorporating accurate non-biased science into the films that are being presented at the film festival reminded us a lot of a concept we researched which is called strategic science translation, which is taking data and skewing it one way or another to um, support whatever political or economic aim that a group may have. And so something that we've all been challenged to do is be conscious of where we are consuming our information from. You know, that's just a component of what shapes our relationship with the environment or the way that we think about these things. We'll continue to sprinkle these kind of probing questions and concepts that came up in our research to help you all think about how they apply in your lives and the conversations that you have with other people and how they have shaped your relationship with the environment, therefore how you converse with one another. 
I think you'll find that it enriches your conversations. We certainly have on our end. As always, we'd like to thank our contributors, Rowan Ulrig and Aubrey Frissel. Stay tuned. We've got a lot coming your way. See you next time.